Amidst the grounds of the Miskatonic University stands a grim archive. Within lies a collection of the darkest secrets known to mankind. But visitor beware, for what horrors lie within their pages. Can you resist their maddening call, or will you succumb to the tales from the Orna Library? Tonight's story, Alone Against the Flames, by Chaosium Incorporated. A little background about tonight's story. Alone Against the Flames is a solo adventure for the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. It is set up like a choose-your-own-adventure book. Now, instead of playing the game ourselves, we decided to pull our public for every decision. You, the listener, take on the role of Jack Garrison, a psychology professor moving from his hometown in Providence, Rhode Island, to Arkham, Massachusetts. Will he make it to his new home unscathed, or will some terrible fate befall him along the way? Stay tuned to find out. The sun is high in the sky, a merciless ball of heat. You feel scorched by the time you reach the bus halt in front of Osborne's drugstore. It's a relief to put down your heavy cases and take off your hat for a moment. You fan your face. It has been a long summer here in your hometown, and yet a curiously empty one. You look across the street at the grubby butcher's shop, the grocer's with its fading awning, and the shabby tobacconist. Mistrustful faces glare at you as they pass eyeing your clothes and luggage. It was your parents' choice to live here, not yours. You were happy down south as a child, among Providence's white-walled houses and leafy churchyards. Perhaps this new job in Arkham will supply you the change you need. Yet, everybody you know in the world lives here. You know nobody in Arkham, not one soul. You ask yourself one last time if you are doing the right thing. The answer is here. None of your supposed friends have come to see you off. You are alone. Whatever challenges lie in Arkham, it will be a new life, and a brave one. A small grey motor car approaches and rattles to a stop. You put your hat back on and pick up your cases. Two young men with sullen expressions alight from the coach. One looks you up and down before heading away. The driver also steps down, glancing at you before crossing the road to visit the tobacconist. When he returns, he is rolling a cigarette between his yellowed fingers. He gives it a final twist and examines you as he reaches for his matchbox. He is a thin man in his fifties, dressed in a stained shirt with a bus company emblem, yet his eyes are sharp in their dark sockets. Where to? You show him your ticket for Ossipy. From there, you will connect to Rochester and Portsmouth, before the coastal line to Newburyport and finally Arkham. You should be able to afford a rail ticket for at least some of the way, otherwise this will be the first of many long bus trips. The driver scratches the match and lights the cigarette. The end flares as he takes a draw, then he exhales and gestures to the back of the coach. Luggage racks up back. The driver smokes and watches as you drag your cases to the back of the motor coach. The rack is set inconveniently high on the vehicle. 
you get a grip on the heavier case. You struggle for a few seconds before the driver comes up beside you and lends a hand, still puffing his cigarette. Heavy bags for a small one, he remarks. You judge it best to respond with a simple thanks. The driver flicks his cigarette into the gutter and steps into the motor coach. Its engine coughs into life. You board, grateful that you will be the only passenger for the initial part of your trip at least. With mixed emotions, you watch from the window as the tired avenues of your old home slip behind you, receding into the distance. For a few minutes, you can still see the church spire over the brow of a low hill. Then the road dips, and it, too, is gone. Arkham is your new home. You will travel there and make a new start. The coach putters through the countryside. At first, the interior is stifling, and your stomach lurches with every bend in the road. However, the driver opens his window, and by switching seats, you find a spot where the breeze hits your face. You soon relax into the journey, observing the quaint little hamlets that the coach serves. A heavyset woman boards at one settlement and gives you a polite nod. She gets off at the next one. The road rises a little, passing cornfields and orchards. The leaves are turning, and the trees are alive with glorious reds and golds. You have just begun to doze when the driver takes a tight bend at speed. A desperate yell awakens you. You feel yourself slide from the seat as the driver spins the wheel and the motor coach plunges off the road. Too late you reach for the seat in front. You fall into the aisle and your ribs crash against the edge of the seat opposite. Breath rushes out of you. The coach stops with a thump. Your driver leaps from his seat into the road. As you sprawl, dizzy in the aisle, you hear a string of incendiary curses. The driver climbs back into the cab and sees you on the floor. He looks concerned and assists you back into your seat. You see what has happened now. A Fordson tractor has stopped in the road and he had to swerve to avoid this steel obstacle. <sighs> Sorry, he says. All them fields, he has to pick the damn road to park. You alright? You don't think anything's broken, but you'll have a colorful bruise for the next few days. He backs up the coach and threads it around the tractor, glaring at the farmer. You resume your journey. The driver takes the curves with more caution than before. He glances over his shoulder at you a couple times. Sorry about before, he says. That feller was dumber than a hog. I'm Silas. What's your name? The accident was at least as much Silas's fault as the farmer's. But it doesn't seem shrewd to antagonize the man while he is driving you through the middle of nowhere. The coach turns onto a narrower road, which weaves uphill through woodland. Silas becomes chatty. Going to Arkham, eh? Can't say I ever heard of the place. Went to Boston once. Didn't much like it. Too much hustle and bustle. You got family there? Special someone waiting? The afternoon is wearing on. You see no harm in confiding in Silas about your new life. A job, eh? What's your line? You explain you are joining the faculty at the renowned Miskatonic University. It's only a junior position, with teaching and tutoring duties but the institution is well regarded. Who knows where the appointment might lead? A symposium? 
a visiting lectureship, even one of its world-spanning expeditions. Hmm. Silas wrinkles his nose. I had enough of book learning when I was a youngin'. Still, I suppose it's well enough for those who likes it. You realize Silas hasn't made a stop since the incident with the tractor. The motor coach winds its way uphill. However, your thoughts are interrupted as the road crests a ridge and you are treated to a magnificent view of the vista below. A creek snakes through the valley, breaking the rich autumn palette of the tree line. In the distance, the white mountains rise into hazy clouds. There is no settlement, not even a cabin, as far as the eye can see. Birds drift through the treetops, and you can just make out what might be two white-tailed deer lingering by the water. Perhaps you are making a mistake by moving to the city. Could you survive on your own in this lush wilderness? The motorcoach rattles on through the hills, and Silas lapses into a silence. The sky darkens behind you, pinks tinting the clouds as the sun descends. Finally, a welcome sight comes into view, a settlement on the crest of the hill. This doesn't look like the pictures you've seen of Ossipi, but perhaps you can persuade Silas to stop while you stretch your legs. Minutes later, a harsh stuttering from the engine interrupts your reverie. Silas frowns and rattles the gear stick. The motor coach falters in its ascent. Silas utters a curse you don't recognize and grinds his teeth, struggling at the wheel. You seem to inch up the hill until you reach the first buildings, low dwellings constructed from a rough red stone. Silas wrestles the coach into a small bay off the road and scrambles from his seat and makes for the engine compartment. You sense a falseness in Silas's actions. He is acting. Either he is not as aggravated about the breakdown as his behavior suggests, or perhaps the breakdown itself is an act. If this is a ruse to make you spend your time and money in a local shop, you will be sadly disappointed in your purchasing power. Silas opens the engine compartment and sticks his head inside. The hot metal pops and sizzles. He pokes at various components, then withdraws and wipes his brow, smearing it with dark grease. I ain't sure what's wrong. Might be the oil pressure, might be something knocked off kilter when we took that spill. Can't do much till the engine cools neither. And with the light failing, well, I reckon we'll be here through the night. He wipes his hand on a rag. The shadows from your surroundings are already long and the air is chilly. You feel stiff from the journey and a night in the rickety coach sounds unappealing. Silas sees your dismay. This here is Emberhead. Miles from any place. I only come through uh, twice a week. But the folks here are good people. May Ledbetter keeps a spare room. She'll look after you. Up that alley, turn right, first house on the left. He scratches his cheek, looks again into the engine compartment, and then spits on the ground. Meet me back here at 8 in the morning, and we'll see how as we stand. You decide to confront Silas with your suspicions. His brow darkens and he shows a mouthful of twisted teeth. Well, ain't it just like you city types? He spits. Thinking the worst of a man after he's gone out of his way to attend to your c 
comfort. He stalks around to the back of the coach and hauls your bags from the rack, dumping them on the ground at your feet. Take them! Otherwise, you'll be accusing me of thievery in the morning. He marches off into the darkness, raging. That could have gone better. You drag your cases between the sullen buildings. You feel surprisingly weary, considering you have spent all day sitting down. Silas's directions lead you to a modest dwelling with a slate roof. A nameplate reads, Leadbetter, and underneath a sign in a neat copperplate reads, Lodging Room. The lane around you is gloomy, but a lamp flickers in the window. A breeze chills your face. You're not about to begin your new life by sleeping in the street. You rap on the weather-beaten door. After a moment, you hear footsteps inside the house. A bolt is drawn back and the wooden door swings open. A figure with loose curls and a rough-looking house dress peers at you. Her gaze takes in your traveling suit and your cases. Her voice has a slight Irish lilt. Hello. Should I take it as you're looking for a room for the night? You inquire as to her rates, suppressing a grimace. As far as you've seen, the village does not offer you many alternatives. Oh, you'll find them reasonable, she says. You look tired. I may. Come inside and we'll have a talk over tea. The Leadbetter house feels cramped, with a low ceiling and simple fittings. But it is well kept, and a cheerful fire crackles in the grate. The aroma of tea is soothing, and the cup warms your fingers. Have you come to Emberhead for the festival? Asks May. You explain what happened with Silas and the coach. May shakes her head, and you glimpse a moment of deep-seated anger in her green eyes. He always drives too fast. Thinks the road is made for him and him alone. He hit a mare some years back. That was a terrible thing. You should have seen the state of the coach. You'd be surprised at the damage done. She sips at her tea and gazes past you, into the corner of the room. With living here, though, we can't afford to antagonize the man. He's about the only link we have to the world at large. But he's not a bad soul at heart. I suppose that going the same route for fifteen years makes a man careless. You have to forgive him. May goes silent for a long moment, then her eyes flick back to you. But you didn't come here to listen to me blather, and you must be hungry. I can rustle you up a bit of stew. How would that be? You ask again about her rates, and May names a price so low you accept it without hesitation. The room is small but comfortable, and the stew dark and hearty. After dinner, you have a couple of hours before your usual bedtime. You decide to stay and chat with May for a while. May talks about life in Emberhead. In her letters, my sister always asks if I'm not bored living in such a small place. She lives in New York. Then she writes about how frightened she is to walk home at night. I ask you. You mention your hopes for a new life in Arkham. May doesn't seem to hear you. It's a small place here, yes. But that means we have a real community. Everybody's face is known. Everybody works together. Nobody is excluded, except for those who choose to exclude themselves, of course. I couldn't live anywhere else now. 
As the hour wears on, you are amused to hear me transform into a sort of tired tourist guide. Of course, the views from here are spectacular on a good day. A clear view all the way around. If you're a painter, you'll be right at home. If your tastes run more to the artisan, there are workshops on Thilbury Street. Just at the end there, and turn right. They're not set up for visitors, you understand? But you'll see the real craftsmen at work. The genuine article. Now, if you're looking for some freshly baked bread... It seems a shame to point out that you intend to be on the road again shortly. You let May continue until she begins to yawn. Would you listen to me yappin? Time to turn in. Uh, when would you like your breakfast? As May stands, you hear a clunk behind you. You look over your shoulder, but all you see is a wooden door securely closed. May tuts. The young lady of the house. She'll have been listening to us. Ruth, come and greet our guest. There is a short pause, then the door creaks open. Two wide eyes peer at you from the gap between tussled hair and a rough nightgown. What do you say? The eyes blink. Pleased to meet you. Now back to bed. The door closes again. My daughter Ruth. Ten years this summer. She's a delight and a torment all in one. Don't worry, she sleeps in with me. She'll not disturb you. Good night now. You retire to your room. It is a little chilly, but you are too tired to worry about lighting the fire. The sheets are clean and the bed soon warms up. The silence outside is strange after living in a town for so long, but you soon drop off. You dream of fire in the grate, coruscating colors shimmering through the dancing tongues of flame. At first they are tiny, almost microscopic, but they grow and grow until a kaleidoscopic inferno spills from the fireplace, spreading across the floor, up the sheets. You wake with a start. Daylight glints through the curtains. You get up and examine the grate, blinking the sleep away from your eyes. It is quite cold. May seems to have no running water, but has supplied some in a ceramic jug. You freshen up at the washstand and go in. She cooks a hearty breakfast and leaves you in peace to eat. At about 7.30, you are paid up, packed, and ready to go. You bid May goodbye, and she wishes you the best for your new career in Arkham. You are already tired of your heavy bags. Hopefully Silas has repaired the motor coach and you can resume your long journey. A sourpuss he might be, but the old driver seemed to understand his vehicle well enough. You pause to check your watch. Still twenty minutes early, and round the final corner. The motor coach is gone. You put your bags down and search the area, trekking up and down slopes and around corners. At the edge of the village, you trace the long road back as it winds across the hills. Eight o'clock comes and goes. There is no coach to be seen. A passing villager notices your bags. Looking for the bus? I heard him take off at first light. He's due back in three or four days. If you need a place to stay, May Ledbetter rents a room. The man raises his hat to you and strolls into the village. You curse Silas under your breath. Perhaps he went for pots. But you wonder if the old goat has stranded you here on purpose. 
May is doing laundry and looks surprised to see you again. Forget something. When you explain the situation, she offers to store your bags while you try to arrange alternative transport. You are grateful to relinquish the load. Nobody here has anything like a car. She strokes her chin and narrows her eyes. Maybe you could find somebody with a horse and a cart for your bags. I could ask around later. Try Mr. Winters at the village hall. He'll know if anyone will. Or ask the artisans. Their workshops are first left on Silbury Street. Sharit is over and squeezes your wrist. Don't worry. I'll not see you sleeping on the street. Money or no money. You thank May and turn to face the village. You wander the streets of Amberhead without any particular destination in mind. The village is built on a relatively flat upland with splendid views. To the north, the hazy tips of the white mountains reach for the heavens. To the south, the sparkling waters of Lake Winnipesaukee touch the horizon. The village itself takes less than five minutes to cross from edge to edge. You arrived on the winding road to the west. The only other road leads to the south, following a lower ridge of the land as it turns east. In the southwest of the village, an open grassy space borders a ruined church, its graveyard cresting the cliffs. To the northeast, three main thoroughfares meet at a raised black metal structure. It looms stark against the blue sky. You decide to follow the road east. The air is fresh and the walk down to the lower ridge invigorating. You notice cultivated fields stretching through the lowlands around Amberhead and among the crops some livestock, but no horses. Are you going to have to make your onward journey on foot? Further down the road skirts the edge of the ridge and descends. There are a few scattered hovels here with signs of habitation. They are set a substantial distance apart. As you examine them, a door opens and an older man steps out. He wears a bedraggled shirt, but carries a piece of cloth which he tosses over his head like a hood. As he does this, he sees you and freezes. The man looks up at the village, scanning the cliff tops. You get a brief flash of his face. There is something unsettling about it. Then he turns to walk away from the road, but as he does, he raises a hand and slowly beckons to you. You follow the man around the outcrop. He glances up, then steps between two rocks and vanishes. Closer inspection reveals a narrow channel leading into the cliff. There's just enough light to see a small, natural chamber within. You will be uncomfortably close to this man if you go inside. Curiosity gets the better of you. With wary steps, you squeeze between rocky outcrops and enter the concealed chamber, almost banging your head on the low ceiling. The man settles back against the wall and watches until you draw close. Then he slides back his hood. Some of the man's face remains. A strip from the side of his jaw to his right eye socket is healthy and pale, if aged. But the left side is consumed by angry scar tissue. One eye droops hooded by melted flesh, and the nostril on that side is pulled up open, leaving a gaping hole. The disfigured man studies your reaction with his one good eye. Name's Arbogast. Willard Arbogast. Guess I don't need to ask you what brings you to Emberhead. You tell him how Silas stranded you here. That swollen mouth gives a little twist downwards. 
His fingers tighten into a fist. Son of a devil has rare blood. Arbogast fixes you with a lopsided yet intense stare. You seek me out, eh? He looks up at the cave ceiling. Which one of them told you about me? Never mind, it don't matter. Truth is, they fear what I know. They'd never come at me direct. Don't want to end up like old Arbogast. <laughs> he giggles. The high-pitched sound is more grotesque coming from those bloated lips. Then, abruptly, his gaze turns to iron. Emberhead died forty years ago, shattered by flame, consumed by the stars themselves. The ancient hill was cleansed by inferno, and from the blackened ground came new life, as is the way of all things. The Abenaki knew. Arbogast wipes his nose on his sleeve. Except none of that happened. The flames were turned away. The necessary death postponed a year and a year again. And now, those up there... He stabs a scrawny finger at the ceiling. Think themselves saviors of the village. Think they can defy the great old ones? Ia Cthulga. He shakes his head. With strange aeons, their lives matter less than a blink of an eye. A fierce intelligence burns in his gaze, but you suspect Arbogast may be quite insane. Should his mood change, it would not be difficult for him to seize one of those loose rocks and crack your skull with it. You inquire as to the Great Old Ones. A smile of sickly rapture comes over Arbogast's scarred features. The Great Old Ones? The Windwalker, Cthulhu, the Crawling Chaos. Like the rest of them, spread like gnats upon the earth. You think your actions matter, yes? Or your existence matters? He shakes his head. We are the dust that shifts in the breeze, the motes that drift in the last rays of sun. You are nothing. We are nothing. He gathers himself into silence. Just when you think the sermon is over, he stirs. Here you are closest to the living flame. Not that belching green column beloved of Kingsport. I mean it which has preceded all life on earth. It which lit the void while our world was formed. It has infinite fuel, infinite patience, and it will consume all. Arbogast runs a hand through his hair. A white strip is missing from the left side, displaced by scar tissue. He climbs to his feet. Arbogast pauses in the shadows. There's something about you. Something the previous ones never had. Perhaps you can make it through. If you want to hear more, meet me again at the dark. Nine o'clock. The graveyard on the other side. He lifts a gnarled finger. Don't be followed, else I won't be there. This ain't the time of year for a showdown. Arbogast wipes his nose on his sleeve again. Go now, their eyes are on me, and stranger, don't try to run, you'll never make it. You'd emerge into the sunlight blinking and more than a little shaken. You turn back to the road and your core business, getting out of Emberhead and onwards towards Arthurpy. The ridge gives you a good viewpoint from which you can see the course of the road. It winds with the hills, disappearing into woodland for a while before emerging further on. You lose sight of it somewhere towards the second patch of woodland, 
By our best estimation, that is at least six or seven miles distant. You see no other settlements or traffic. It may be worth taking a chance and walking. The weather is still mild, but you will need supplies before you attempt it. You decide to head towards Village Hall to seek out authority. The Village Hall backs against the cliff at the east end of Silbury Street. It is the largest building you've seen so far in Emberhead. It is, however, locked and shuttered. You walk around it, peering through gaps in the shutters. There seems to be one large room, presumably for community meetings, and a smaller annex that serves as an office and archive. One of the windows is bricked up. Back at the main door, you can see no posted opening hours. Mr. Winters doesn't open on mornings this time of year. Best come back this afternoon, says a grey-garbed woman passing by. You ask whether the office has a telegraph. Don't know, she shrugs. Who would we call? You will have to try again later. Looking around, the ruined churchyard piques your curiosity. You cross the street towards the church. As you glance to your left, your gaze alights on a large metal structure. Something bothers you about its positioning. You back up and look again. Yes, and the head's central thoroughfare points directly at the structure. This seems too precise to be a coincidence. You press on and draw into the shadow of the church. The building is in a sorry state. The top of the steeple is missing, a ragged gash of splintered boards marking its absence, and the floors beneath it have collapsed. The white paint which once covered the church has yellowed and peeled. It seems safe enough to explore the rear section. Old pews are stacked against the wall, choked with mildew. Most of the windows are broken. You guess this church has been disused for about twenty years. There is little more to interest you. You decide to seek out the villagers and ask them about transportation. Not far from the Leadbetter House, on the north side of Silbury Street, there is an open courtyard. The rhythmic tattoo of a hammer seems to announce your approach. The courtyard is the busiest location you have yet seen in Emberhead. It is bordered by a ring of workshops. Some are brick buildings, some only rough huts. A blacksmith ceases to hammer, thrusting something red and glowing into a bucket of cold water. A weaver looks up at you from his loom, blinking at you for a moment before returning to his shuttle. A potter, engraver, and carpenter each work in their own space, exchanging friendly banter. You move among the artisans, chatting about their work, Eventually, you bring up the question of export. Some of them send occasional packages with Silas. Some restrict their custom entirely to villagers. You receive no suggestion about alternative transport. One of the workshops is shut up. When you stray close to it, the repartee between the craftspeople becomes awkward, almost forced. Interesting. Your morning exertions have left you hungry. You roam the streets of Emberhead looking for sustenance, but there is nothing resembling the busy cafes of your hometown, or anything that might be called a restaurant. It is beginning to look like you will have to get supplies from the general store when May Ledbetter comes down the street with a girl trailing in her wake. This must be Ruth. As she notices you, she races past her mother and approaches you with a smile. 
This is a different Ruth from the shy creature last night. As she reaches you, she stops and stretches her arm up in celebration. She looks up into your eyes. Abruptly, the smile drops from her face, and she looks several years older. Get out of here before the festival, she hisses. Get out! She blinks hard, then scuttles back towards her mother. May approaches, wrapping an arm around her daughter's shoulders. She smiles. How are you getting on? Have you found transport? Startled, you explain the frustration of the situation. Well, I'd try Mr. Winters in the village hall. He's always in in the afternoon. You'll be hungry by now? Help yourself to any food in the kitchen. The door's not locked. You glance at Ruth where she has squirreled herself behind her mother's legs. Her eyes implore you to silence. You ask May why Ruth wants you to leave town. She gives her daughter a hard stare. Ruth looks at the ground. May says, Ruth doesn't like it when we have guests in the house. But she needs to learn that we don't always get what we want in life. Sometimes we have to do things we might not best like. But they're necessary all the same. May shakes her head at you and then nods back in the direction of the house. You catch a hint of emotion in those green eyes. You take your leave of the Leadbetters and head towards their house. The door opens easily. In the low kitchen, you make a meal from stodgy bread and leftover stew. A low window offers you a view of the mountains. If you learned one thing this morning, it is that Emberhead streets hold little to occupy the visitor from out of town. But there are still about five hours of daylight remaining. You could take provisions and the bare essentials from your luggage and set out in hope of reaching another settlement before dark. Or, you can ask advice from this Mr. Winters. The village hall overlooks the lower north ridge of the village. You walk along Silbury Street to find it, conscious of the oppressive black metal structure framed at the end of the road. The shutters of the hall are open, and some windows left ajar. There is no knocker, but a little bell over the entrance tinkles as you push the front door. Inside, a sturdy door to your right is marked Private. To your left, an opening leads through to a bright room. You take a few steps inside. Benches line the wall, and there are two notice boards mounted between the windows. You raise your hand to knock on the door, but it opens before you can complete the movement. The middle-aged gentleman behind it takes an involuntary step back, adjusting his spectacles. You hasten to apologize and introduce yourself. He steadies himself and peers at you. I see... I'm Clyde Winters. Uh, just visiting, you say? And you've come to see me? <laughs> I care for a cup of coffee. I usually take one at this time in the afternoon. His invitation seems genuine enough, and a good opportunity to ask any questions that are on your mind. You step through the door marked private. The other side of the village hall is in marked contrast to the public space. The room is compact lined with shelves of books and file alcoves. One corner is reserved for a tiny pantry and what is presumably a water closet. You study Mr. Winters as he fills the percolator. Although thin on top, his hair is oiled and neatly swept back. His suit is a sober affair and well tailored even if it is cut a little old-fashioned. A lesser man working alone might have loosened his bow tie for comfort. On the desk against the opposite wall, you notice what looks like a telegraph set. 
The pot begins to gurgle as you exchange pleasantries with Winters. Living here? It's a trade-off, like so much in life. He looks past you at a high shelf. I could wish for access to a proper library, of course. But I know myself well enough. I'm strictly a dabbler. And the cities? His face wrinkles in distaste. Too many people. Everybody running and shouting. We have a special place here in Emberhead. And someone must accept responsibility for keeping it so. That was my father before me, and now the duty falls to me. He lifts his chin and straightens up. This evening, uh, as the sun sets, look out at the landscape around the village. We have peace up here, halfway to the stars. Are we not privileged? Is this not worth the hardships we must accept? He looks at you speculatively. This seems a good time to ask about the telegraph. The telegraph? Mm. Much as we value our isolation, we do need the link sometimes. You were hoping to send a message? I must apologize. The line has been down for two weeks. I reported the fault, of course, but they're not so speedy when the problem lies in a rural area. I'm expecting repair the day after next. I do appreciate how frustrating this must be. The coach is due in what? Three days? But I think he's going west. Perhaps you might engage a wagon? One of the farmers might. You explain that you have already asked a few of the residents already, but to no avail. I tell you what. Winter pours you a steaming cup of coffee. The dark liquid smells rich and strong. When the repair crew arrives, I'll ask them to take you back with them. How would that be? They might want a dollar or two to grease the wheels. The day after tomorrow? It's less than ideal, but it's the first real opportunity you've had. As the light fades, you return to the Ledbetter house and eat a light supper. May is unusually taciturn. Rude's eyes flick to you several times during the meal. There is an urgency that you cannot quite interpret. Afterwards, May ushers the girl back into her room. You have been in Emberhead for barely one whole day, and you already feel confined by it, both geographically and socially. The evening seems to offer little. You recall your meeting with Arbogast and decide to follow up. However, he is not at the appointed meeting place. You give him ten minutes, but he doesn't show. You curse the old crank and head back towards May's house. Psst! A hand snakes from a doorway and grabs your arm. You jump at the sight of that half-face glimpsed in the starlight. One of them's near, he whispers. Watch it. Come with me. Arbogast leads you across the thoroughfares, slipping between houses. The metal structure looms at the end of the street. Silent now, he says. But the beacon will come alive tomorrow night. He ushers you into a little alcove behind the village school. Abagast glances behind you, then sits down. Again, you feel uncomfortable in proximity to that scarred visage. One melted eyelid lifts. You don't have long. Understand this. I was the conduit, the interpreter. 
before that fool winters in his fancy words. The things which come to Emberhead cannot for words. Those idiots think this is a ritual of sacrifice? He spits on the grass. It is a ritual of control. They know the words, but they do not comprehend the forces they call. He sniffs and sits back. No, you have no time for more questions. I will teach you how to end it. In the moment when all is lost, you can return this hill to the earth, to that death that came forty years ago. I've tried it myself, but... His head sags. I no longer have the concentration. The chant is simple. I can teach you. But you must perform it with the clarity of mind that I have lacked for years. You feel very dislocated from reality as you sit on a clifftop behind a school at night learning a chant by rote from a madman. Abagast is careful to teach you it in sections. He glances into the sky. <sighs> Won't work right now. Clouds covering the star. But he still takes care not to pronounce the whole thing at once. It has a rhythmic beginning and various elaborations, but the core passage is repeated three times. Finglui magwa na fa kathuga fumal hot nagaga a na fal fagen ia kathuga. In time, Abagast listens to your recital and nods. Remember every sound, but never speak it if you have plans left on this earth. Abagast leans back. It will make you one with the living. Suddenly, a black shape lunges from the dark. It wraps an arm around Arbogast's throat and drags him backwards out of the alcove. He grabs at the arm, kicking empty air. You see the gleam of a long blade in the moonlight. Something smashes you on the temple. You reel back. You hear Arbogast yell and see the knife flash. One, two, three times. Its shiny surface is darkening with blood. Something strikes you again, and as you sink, flames leap from the ground, painting the night with infernal color. They pick out three dark figures. You awake with a jolt, wrestling the blankets, ready for attack! The Leadbetter guest room is quiet, painted with morning light. There is nobody here but you. You release the blankets and wait for your heart to stop hammering. The Leadbetter kitchen is empty, although bread and eggs have been laid out for your breakfast. There is a note from May explaining that she has taken Ruth out for a few hours. You feel skittish as you approach the spot where you and Arbogast were attacked. Your memory of the encounter is shaky, but you remember one or two vivid images. At first you think there is nothing to see, no discarded weapons or figures lying unconscious, but upon closer examination you'll find sticky, congealed patches and blackened lines in the grass. If the village had a police station, you could go there, but something tells you events have gone beyond that. You make a quiet circuit of the village, pausing in unobtrusive places to watch the villagers. It is rather busy for this time in the morning. Yawning locals stream back and forward along the roads, carrying bundles of spit logs to the site of what you've heard referred to as the beacon. You see two figures already up in its superstructure, arranging the wood. The festival bonfire will be most impressive. But do you intend to stay to see it? You suspect by now that something is amiss here. 
While the villagers are distracted, you may do some illicit investigation. Or you may simply leave town without looking back. You decide to further investigate the artisan's courtyard. You approach around the back of the buildings in Emberhead's northwest corner. By this time in the morning, you would expect activity in the artisan's courtyard, but the benches and anvils sit deserted. Your footsteps echo off the surrounding walls. One of the workshops is shut up and padlocked. You peek through the joints, but you can see nothing inside. You examine the workshop. It is well constructed, but the wood has been weakened by years of sun and rain. You may be able to break it open with one fierce charge. You had better make it good, though. You can't afford to attract attention with repeated tries. You hurl all your weight against the door, but it doesn't budge. You step back and regard it in frustration. A crunching noise distracts you, and a human shadow falls on a nearby wall. Someone is approaching. You melt away in the other direction. Having no luck at the artisan's courtyard, you decide to see what's really going on at the beacon. The northern side of the village is bustling, and you are unlikely to remain hidden there for long. You head in the direction of the church, and then move up the east side behind the houses. A drop looms on your right. One particular section of ground is quite narrow, and you have to hug the building for support. You decide to give it a shot. The turf sinks beneath your feet, and stones crumble from its edge. Alarmed, you grip the building and ease yourself forward. Finally, you have a good spot to watch the beacon. You lie concealed in the grass and watch the activity around the beacon. Villagers bring in yet more bundles of tinder and stack them in a neat pile. Another shift passes the bundles up to a pair of men standing on the raised platform of the beacon. They are constructing a triangular structure resembling a gigantic campfire. As you watch, you are struck by the manner of the laborers. This is their festival. You would expect a cheerful atmosphere and some light-hearted conversation. Yet the faces of some show resignation and detachment, others a naked dread. You watch for a good half hour before you slip away. Unnerved at what you have just seen, you decide to see if your host, May Ledbetter, is hiding anything from you. Despite your hospitality, you do not trust May Ledbetter. You return to her house quite openly. Where else would you go? Inside, the dwelling is still empty. You rap on the bedroom door and wait. Silence. You ease it open. The lead better bedroom is in marked contrast to your own neat space. Dirty clothes are piled about the floor. On a rough quilt lie schoolbooks and cheap novels. You notice a raggedy old doll discarded on the side of the bed. Looking around, you notice scrapes on the floorboards corresponding to the legs of the bed. With effort, you slide the bed away. There is a rug spread beneath it, and beneath the rug, a trapdoor. You ease it open. The dark space beneath is some kind of cellar. You squeeze beneath the floor and glance around. Your first impression is that May keeps her junk here, for there are many boxes of different sizes piled in untidy heaps. It takes a few seconds before you realize they are all traveling trunks or suitcases. There are about twenty of them. The implication hits you hard, yet you maintain enough control to check the luggage tags. 
You count eight or nine different names before you stop. Scrambling back up to the bedroom, you close the trapdoor with trembling fingers, returning the bed to its place. You are contemplating your next move when you see one villager, a bald man with a damaged ear, watching you very intently. Some instinct makes you walk in another direction. Then you see the others, ahead and to your sides. A wary teenager, an evil-eyed matron, and a man hefting a club. They are not staring as obviously as the first, but they are keeping you under watch. And they are closing in. You cannot hope to overcome four of them at once. You dart down an alley, then turn and head in a completely different direction. Running feet sound behind you. For the first time, you feel Emberhead's cramped, chaotic streets work in your favor. You try to circle around towards the southern road. You turn a corner and walk straight into the formidable woman with the malevolent stare. She grabs your shoulders and bears down on you. As you struggle, the man with the club runs up with the teenager. You are quickly overcome. The fading light from a narrow window tells you afternoon is giving way to evening. Your hands are shackled behind your back so you cannot even lie on the rough bed. A woman you have not seen before comes in. Her face is wrinkled and her eyes dull. They do not meet yours, but she puts a cup up to your lips. You turn your face away, and when she tries again, you dash the cup from her hands using the side of your head. The clear liquid spills across the floor. The woman gives a half shrug and then turns to leave the room. You shout after her, but she gives no reaction. Soon you become thirsty. As the light fades outside, your little prison becomes dark. You can hear much activity around the building. Occasionally, an orange glow passes the window. The only comfortable position in your shackles seems to be to sit against the end of the bed with your arms hanging behind you. You need to concentrate and come up with a plan. There is clearly no escape from your bonds. You do not know exactly what your captors want from you, but you cannot ignore the fact that they have spent the entire day constructing a massive bonfire. The door scrapes, wrenching you back into the moment. Orange light spills into the house from blazing torches held at the threshold. Two large villagers step in and grab you. At least, you assume they are villagers. They wear heavy black cloaks, and their faces and hands are painted entirely black save only for a red triangle centered on their left eye. You try to drag your legs, but they reach under your arms and lift you bodily from the bed. Outside, it seems that the whole village has congregated to see you. Every single one has a blackened face with the red triangle motif. You struggle, but you can see physical resistance is hopeless. You are marched to the central street and turned to face the beacon. The procession down the approach is slow and formal, save when you sense weakness and yank at your captors. A chill touches you when you see three human shapes carried ahead of you, draped in red cloth. The beacon looms larger and larger, its dreadful silhouette a black triangle pointing to the stars. A low drone begins among the cloaked figures. Unbidden, the word mourners comes to mind. Smoke from their torches makes you cough. You feel heat on your face. As you reach the cleared area around the beacon, three dancers break from the pack. 
Young girls swinging balls of fire in spectacular arcs, drawing circles in the night air. One by one they draw close to you and touch your forehead with sooty fingers. Each kisses you three times, on the left cheek, right cheek, then forehead. Then they whisper in your ear. The smell of kerosene fills your nostrils. Through your sacrifice, the village will be reborn, says the first dancer. You pass from earth to air for all our sakes, says the second. I've weakened the chains, says the third. Don't try to escape until the flames are high enough to hide you. You stare at the third dancer. In that inky visage, you clearly discern the frightening features of Ruth Ledbetter. The dancers weave off and disappear behind the buildings. As you arrive beneath the beacon, ten villagers close in on you. Working with surprising coordination, they immobilize you and lift you up the blackened iron stairs to the raised platform. You cannot help but shiver at the sight of the central framework, twisted from past blazes, and what you can now clearly see to be the fastening point for chain. None of the eyes meet yours as they lash you to the metal. The village sings now, something rhythmic and ancient, carved from old syllables. A second group ascends to the beacon, carrying the three red-draped bodies. With reverence, they arrange the bodies in a triangle around your feet. Then they withdraw, leaving you alone with the dead, shin-deep in a sea of kindling. It seems the entire village is gathered around the beacon to watch you burn. Behind the face paint, you recognize May Ledbetter, and... Yes, that is Silas, the coach driver, standing at her side. The audacity and scale of the deception staggers you. A man steps up on a dais and raises his hands with quiet authority. The frame of his spectacles obscures the red triangle on his face. So we draw together again on this night as we do each year, and we give thanks to the ones who will preserve the village against the fire of the void. You will be taken to the ones from above in our stead. Your death will bring life to our streets and bounty to our fields. It will safeguard our children and our elderly alike for another year. We salute you. He bows his head. All around the beacon, bearers step forward and lift their torches to the edge of the raised platform. A ring of tiny flames flicker up around the perimeter. As they wink, the singing of the villagers drops into an unearthly rhythm. The flames snake across the kindling, catching and rising. Smoke rises and it becomes difficult to see the villagers. The three bodies surrounding you catch fire, blazing with sooty red flames. You begin to cough as the smoke enters your lungs, and you fight down the urge to panic. The flames draw closer as you bring Arbogast's chant to mind. It is hard to clear your head as the heat grows beneath your feet. You cough and sputter, but you sustain the words. Finally, you reach the key passage, and even as your clothes catch fire, you yell for the third time. The swirling tongues of flame around you stop in midair. The people around the beacon freeze, their black painted faces bleached and striped as a second sun opens in the air above Emberhead. 
In an instant, the people, the village, the hill, all are consumed. Incinerated by impossible proximity to the sheer combustion, the essence of fire. Though your body is bound to the beacon, your being is freed. As a spark, you race into space, catapulted through the vastness of the void. The stars burn past you with incomprehensible velocity, and then you are home. Forever you will dwell here at Fomalha, where the flames ripple and flow through immense spaces to the rhythms of the universe, where planets themselves move and tilt through unutterable wheels of fire, bound to the clockwork chaos of the living flames. And among the flames, you will dance. You have single-handedly destroyed a section of New Hampshire that is 16 miles in diameter. This has also killed you. The End We sincerely thank you for listening to our story tonight. We hope it gave you chills and thrills alike. Join us next time for a reading of The Color Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft. And remember, the library is always open.